Lesson 5. How to Prepare for What You Want Whatever we prepare for, we get. The more quickly we prepare for it, the more quickly we get it. The more completely we prepare for it, the more completely we receive it. The more perfect our preparation, the more perfect the materialization. Do not waste your time, thought, or energy looking for exceptions to this, for you will not find them. On the contrary, you will discover, perhaps for the first time, that the realizations of the people you know match the preparations they made in advance. You will see that these two sets of things in all the lives you know coincide too nearly to have just happened. Whenever you see a man with a suit that looks as though he had been poured into it or a woman wearing a gown that fits her perfectly, you know for a certainty that each had several fittings, try-ons, before such accuracy was attained. You can know the very same thing when you see the general conditions in any person's life. He may complain that these are farthest from what he ordered, that these things he is surrounded by, the things that happen to him and the things he possesses, are the exact opposite of what he had arranged for. And no doubt they are very different from what he meant to order or what he thought he was ordering. But look closer and you will find that they reflect precisely what that person has been preparing for in his own secret mind. Life doesn't pay much attention to what you tell other people you are after. It pays no heed to what you pretend or imagine you are ordering. But it pays the strictest attention to what you actually get ready for and delivers the goods accordingly. Ah, uh, but you are mistaken, you say. Why, I know a man, several of them in fact, who have made every preparation for success and failed. Also, I know of several people who just stumbled into success. And so it may seem to you, for you see only the shell of any human being. The inside individual, the real person, you seldom get a glimpse of. That real one in each of us lives far beneath the person visible to others and is often so different from our external nature that no one suspects what we really feel. We are all Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, more or less, and the one you think is the real you is often secondary. This is always true of the kinds of people you have just mentioned. These men who, you say, have always prepared for the best but got the worst. What is the truth about them? That they appeared on the outside to be making great preparations for the best in life. But this was the lesser personality. The greater, the real one, was getting ready all the time for exactly what has happened. These other people, the ones you say just stumbled into success without preparations or capacity for it, what are the inside facts about them? That no matter how little you thought of them or how little you realized it, no matter how it seemed to you on the outside looking in, these people were making preparations, which you never suspected, and for the very thing that has come to them, not only for success, but for the very kind of success they achieved. There are no accidents. Everything in the universe occurs in accordance with law. If you don't know it, it is merely that you do not see or understand the law. And of laws, there is none more certain than that you get what you prepare for. People often cry, why doesn't success come to me and my friends, us estimable, deserving people, instead of those unworthy ones who are not half so good as we are? They won't believe it because they like themselves so well, but here is the true answer. Only those deserve me who are willing to woo me, to love me, to seek me, and above all, to prepare for me, says success. All these requirements have been fulfilled, you may be sure, by every person in the world who ever succeeded, whether you have been aware of this or not. You doubtless often consider these successful people less worthy than yourself, but worth consists of many elements. Success is a loyal friend to all who study her laws, her peculiarities, her demands, and who take the trouble to fulfill them. 
She will have nothing to do with those who talk about her behind her back, who turn their mind's eye constantly upon her rival, failure. And she flatly refuses to go where there have been little or no preparations made for her. This lesson is for the purpose of explaining the law and the lure of preparation. It is irresistible. Prepare for a thing, and sooner or later you will find that thing walking into your house of life. It may wait years, or it may come tomorrow, but come, it surely will. No matter what the neighbors say, get ready. Set thy house in order for achievement, and she will one day appear at the door. If success seems fickle to you, if she has refused to come to you, it is because you have thus far never really prepared for her, and she knows it. All the talk in the world, all your hard work and just desserts, will not induce her to pay you a visit if you have left out the special preparations for her, which she demands. Hard work and just desserts are wonderful things, and they are absolutely necessary, but they are not all that is necessary. To induce success to come to you, you must work, yes, and work effectively, but you must make the special arrangements for her coming, which she is so partial, Otherwise, she will continue to pass you by. Much less work will win her if you will take the trouble to find out and produce for her the things she is especially fond of. She is like a very busy man I know. He is noted, in fact famous, and very popular. Everyone invites him to dinner. He has a very kind heart and hates to refuse, though he knows he will be frightfully busy and really cannot spare the time when the date arrives. He accepts nearly every invitation, but seldom appears. His secretary calls up at the last moment with the message that he is unavoidably detained. There is one kind of household I always favor, he once said to me. The little ones, where the woman has no servant, where she does all her own work, and where she personally has made all the preparations, even to cooking the dinner. I cannot disappoint people who go to so much trouble for me with their own hands, he explained. But these big houses where my hosts have put themselves to no bother, where a retinue of servants have been ordered to arrange all the details, these are places I often fail to reach. Does this reveal anything to you? Next time you see someone whom you consider less deserving than yourself riding on the top wave of success, realize that you are looking at one who has, with his own hands, his own heart, and his own efforts, prepared for that very thing. Bear also in mind that when you see the failure that somehow or other he has not made those preparations. Despite all he says, he has not given himself to the wooing of success. He has invited her, of course, but that being done, he has devoted himself to something else while waiting for her to arrive. How seldom you hear of a guest of honor being unable to attend the luncheon or reception. We get there somehow, don't we? when the preparations have been made for us personally. Well, success is just like you and me. If she has not arrived yet, the chances are 100 to 1 that although you have invited her, you have been making your real plans and preparations for her enemies, failure, unhappiness, ill health, and self-pity. Let her know she is the main show, so far as you are concerned. Give some of your best personal attention to making the banquet ready for her and she will arrive. The other thing we hear so often from the disgruntled is, that successful chap was given certain opportunities that were the making of him, all kinds of chances. No such luck ever came to me. These people fail to see that opportunities are everywhere, all the time, more than any of us can use, but are of no value to him who is not prepared for them. When opportunity comes, says W.A. Heath of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, is of little consequence. The thing is, what are you prepared to make of it when it does come? Opportunities are always to be found, ready and waiting. But men who are ready for opportunities are found very rarely. Mary Garden says, Thousands have written asking me how they may become successful at singing. But most of them seem to think if one has talent, no preparation is necessary. Even genius needs more preparation than the average person realizes. And as for talent, it is useless without preparation. 
Every hour of the day, the young singer should be thinking, planning, dreaming. He should be studying the art, the musical world, his or her own personality, every turn of the road to be traveled. The singer must live with his art and dream day and night of his career if he would succeed. If the thing you say you want most does not come to you in your night dreams, daydreams, and every other kind of dream, it is not one of your deepest desires, and you should begin to prepare yourself for those things which do come to you in your imaginings. After the singer's training is complete, continued Miss Garden, she should expect to give three years more, the first for finding herself, the second for perfecting herself, and the third to get on the stage. If she cares so deeply for her art that she can think of nothing else for very long at a time, and she will prepare herself under the best teachers, she will find the opera companies to receive her, the opera lovers to hear her, and the opportunities to make as large a place for herself as she is able to fill. Robert W. Stewart, head of the Standard Oil Company of Indiana, is now one of the highest paid executives in that great organization due to the simple fact that he was always ready for opportunity. He was always prepared to win, even in the smallest affairs. He left no stone unturned, no matter how insignificant the matter was, nor how uncertain the outlook. He used to live in the little town of Pierre, out in South Dakota. If you ever saw this drab, forsaken village, you would probably say there was no chance for a man in such a place. No use to go to a lot of trouble preparing for opportunity in that spot. But young Robert Stewart organized his law cases, little as they were, with the same care and thoroughness as if he were handling the biggest cases for the biggest concerns in the world, which he is now doing. For instance, he was given a case that involved damages for a fire which was alleged to have been caused by sparks flying from a railroad engine quite a distance away. The amount at stake was small, and young Stewart's fee, still smaller, but he spent twice the sum for railroad fares to ride back and forth on that train till he got his evidence. Later, when his ability as a preparer had become known and he was attorney in a case where the question was one of adulterated goods put out by a certain concern, he didn't rely for his facts on the testimony of paid experts, but donned overalls, got a job in the factory at small wages, and studied processes at first hand for many weeks till he knew what he was talking about. And of course, he won the case. Every successful man could relate many such stories from his own experience. Don't be afraid that your preparations will be in vain. The whole world is crying for prepared people. It will pay almost anything for them. It is a well-known fact that although men are always standing in line for the small, underpaid jobs that require little or no preparation, many of the highest-salaried places are frequently vacant because men big enough to fill them are not to be found. Lots of men would like to have them but cannot take them because when the big opportunity knocks at their doors, they are not ready. I know many people, and so do you, who want the biggest, reddest apples on the tree of life, but who never think of shaking it. They want the rarest fruits to fall into their laps and won't even hold their laps. Life's tree is loaded with the things you want, but if you spend your time standing under it in the shade, you will only get the windfalls. There will always be flaws in the things which fall at your feet, wormholes, frostbites, or something, because the folks who climb the trees take all the plums. Inspiration is a wonderful thing, but unless it is backed up by preparation, it won't carry you very far. Inspiration isn't supposed to pull your load. It is mighty important as a self-starter, but when it gives you a push in the right direction, you are expected to do something for yourself. If you don't, you will have fewer inspirations, more perspiration, and less realization as time goes on. You hear about a man who rises to an emergency, and you wonder how he did it. Invariably, such a man has prepared himself in advance for just such a tight place. The subconscious mind is the habit mind. It can easily be trained to new and different habits, and one of the best is that of being ready for the thing you want. But if I prepare and it never comes, ask the 99 out of every 100, 
poor, skeptical, short-sighted ones. Don't you know that no person in all the world ever grew big enough for a better place without finding a better place big enough for him? The occasions when one can do a thing without preparation are so few and far between that they will never build a successful life. The things we do efficiently and brilliantly, apparently without effort, are seldom done on the spur of the moment at all. These are always done by the subconscious or unconscious mind, which is able to accomplish it for you because, when you least realized it, you had been filling it with the power necessary to this brilliant performance. Last year, a remark made by a 50-year-old salesman in an eastern city was printed all over the country. He had gone into the office of a man who was the buyer for one of the largest building concerns in America and came out 20 minutes later with a million-dollar order. The other salesmen gathered around him in awesome amazement and exclaimed, and you did it in 20 minutes, didn't you? Yes, he replied, 20 minutes plus 30 years. But his commission on the order amounted to a splendid income for that 30 years, so he didn't mind. Rule one, know that psychological moments are sure to arrive in your life and begin now to get ready for them. On this subject, Purinton says to all who are in business, study your job and the job of the man higher up than you. For by doing so, you are preparing yourself to go up higher when the psychological moment arrives. Those who do not believe they can get the things they want or who refuse to get ready for them are never prepared for these magic moments. They remain in the mediocre class all their lives, or at least until something awakens them to the great truths. The subconscious mind must be given preparation by proper methods. By preparation, I mean filling your subconscious with your desires. Faithful preparation for getting, recognizing, using, and capitalizing the thing you want by faithfully feeding your subconscious with expectant, constructive success thoughts about the particular and specific thing you are interested in. The ways for doing this are so many, you will have little difficulty in finding them. But the kinds of things necessary to do so are few and so well known to all successful people that any intelligent person may learn them and apply them. If he will, he can make the achievement of what he wants absolutely certain. Rule two, a certain amount of training for what you desire to do is naturally essential. And if you really want this thing, you will enjoy the training it necessitates. Your hand must be trained, don't forget that, but your head must be trained more. And if you really want the great things of life, your heart most of all. Give yourself the technical training or whatever is necessary in the way of tools. Don't expect to be a successful lawyer without studying law or a doctor without taking a medical course. Don't expect to sing or paint or play or act or sell or speak or preach or do anything that is worth doing unless you have studied your subject, that is, stored your subconscious mind with the fundamentals. If this study connected with the thing you say you want is distasteful to you, you do not really want it, and you had better turn to something you fully desire. Do not think, as so many have, that conscious training, cramming of technicalities, facts, and figures into the conscious mind is the main preparation toward acquiring anything. It is the first step, but it is not the biggest, best, or longest. The greatest step is taken toward what you want when you begin to train the subconscious. To take this step toward what you want, first, know what you want. Second, affirm that you are going to get it. Third, consciously study toward it. Fourth, begin to dwell upon this great thing you want by letting your inner mind have charge of it. Rule three. Encourage yourself to seek and to create the atmosphere and attitudes that go with this thing you want. For instance, if you wish to be a minister, a missionary, a social worker, or do anything unusual in this field, place yourself as frequently as possible in this atmosphere. Do not wait for the actual arrival of the time when you will be in this work yourself 
but seek out the places where this ideal dominates. Seek out the people who are doing the biggest things in this field and gradually make their acquaintance. Do not rush them. Do not force yourself into their company. Remember the rule stated once before and one which will be stated many times hereafter, that it is by giving to, not in trying to get from, people that we win them to us. This method is not only fair, but invariably successful. Make yourself useful, helpful, inspiring, and pretty soon you will have made yourself indispensable, for these are qualities the whole world admires and responds to. People will seek you, make a place for you, give you opportunities, and the rest is easy. Before you try to do anything for them or with them, however, make yourself one of them at heart. Learn what it really is they are doing, what the movement actually stands for, what its history has been. Familiarize yourself with its great personalities and study their lives as well as the subject itself. Otherwise, you will be at a disadvantage when you meet the representatives of this great movement. Furthermore, it will make you uninteresting to them. I love you because you love the things I love is something to remember. In this connection, let me give you two widely different illustrations from life. A beautiful young college woman came to me some years ago and said she had ambitions to be a missionary but did not know how to go about realizing them. She had been brought up in a dry farming region in Nevada, far away from any church, and did not contact Christian people or Christian ideals until she entered the University of California. Immediately, she became deeply interested and, as was natural to one of her spiritual nature, wanted to do something to help. She had decided as a freshman that she wanted to do this work, But when she came to me in the last semester of her junior year, she had gone no further toward preparing for it than three attendances at church every Sunday. The whole idea had been so new to her that she did not know where to begin, and she was too timid to admit that the facts about the Christian religion so familiar to all the other girls were utterly unfamiliar to her. She had been afraid to make any move for fear of exposing this ignorance. Right here is the best place to say that if you want to get anything worthwhile, you must not be above confessing lack of information whenever necessary to get information. Such a one will always remain ignorant while he who asks and admits he doesn't know will grow into knowledge. The ignorant man doesn't fool anybody anyhow, except that he is usually considered more ignorant than he really is, while the man who is frank about what he doesn't know is the one we tie to. A national convention of the YWCA was soon to be held in a nearby city, and I recommended to this young woman that she attend every session she possibly could, not as a participant at all, but to listen and look and absorb everything she could. What can I learn that way, she inquired. I will be just a spectator. I won't know what it is all about. I want to get at the inside facts. I want to know what they are doing and why and who everybody is and how I can get into it too. She had thought so much about her conscious training and knew so little about the necessity for the far more important development of the subconscious that she was much surprised when I said, go there and throw yourself into the atmosphere, just as a man who is trying to swim goes into the water. Let it submerge you, sweep over you, swallow you up. Don't try to figure out, first thing, what everyone is doing and why. Give the ideals, aims, hopes, and aspirations connected with it a chance to soak into your soul. Stop thinking or studying or wondering or analyzing or judging about it. Just let yourself feel what is going on. Sense the bigger things back of the speeches, motions, business, and committee meetings. In other words, get into the spirit. If the spirit does not carry you along, you will know for sure you are not meant for this work, in which case more training would be useless. I recommended that she join the university YWCA, enroll in classes devoted to the history of Christianity, that she familiarizes himself with the Bible, and that she read all she could find on the lives of the great modern preachers. 
But most necessary of all in her case was a sympathetic agreement with all that Jesus taught. If she gave herself fully and enjoyably to these, a solid foundation would be laid, and the rest could be added later. But if she felt impelled to withhold the best of her conscious self from the master's teachings, her subconscious would never yield up its fullest efficiency. All these things furnish the subconscious with the raw materials it must have for manufacturing the finished article for you later on. The other example is as far removed from this one as could well be imagined, but it is an equally clear illustration of the fact that subconscious preparation for a thing is needful regardless of what the thing may be. It will also show that the amount and intensiveness of preparation you should make to get any particular thing will depend on how far you are removed from it to start with. A young Norwegian servant girl of intelligence but of little education, of good character but crude personality, told me the one thing she wanted most of all was to marry well, preferably some American of means, education, and refinement, and to have a lovely child. That this young woman, ambitious, intelligent, and beautiful in character though she was, had a long way to go to prepare for marriage, you will agree. She had practically to remake her personality and acquire an education. Within five years after her arrival in this country, and within four years after she applied my instructions, this young woman who could not speak a word of our language when she landed, who knew nothing about our ways, customs, or standards, had mastered English, attained a good education, developed a pleasant personality, and acquired a successful young husband and a beautiful baby boy. To the people who had known her as a servant girl only five years before, her brilliant marriage was no doubt a mystery, but not to us, who also knew the laws. She had taken herself and her big desire seriously. She had studied the very rules you are at this moment reading, and she applied them incessantly, uninterruptedly, earnestly. Nothing is impossible to the subconscious mind of the ambitious man or woman. Rule four, make your preparations as complete, heaped up, and running over as you can. Never be afraid of building too strong a foundation. When rewards are slow in coming, or when those attained are not as great as you had expected, rest assured that insufficient preparation is partly, if not wholly, the cause. As soon as your preparations are adequate, as soon as you have really done your part, the results will begin to come. Don't be discouraged. Don't slide back and give up. Don't slump and say, oh, what's the use? Maybe there's nothing in this anyhow. Instead, get a new grip on yourself. Go on with your preparations and you will see. It is precisely because the law of preparations is eternal, impersonal, and accurate that superficial, slipshod preparations never accomplish much. Thoughtful, serious, earnest preparation, in short, real preparation, always brings the desired results, or better ones. The following illustrates the law of adequate preparation in a very graphic way. It is from the lips of Harriet Luella McCollum, who lived on a Kansas farm till past middle age, yet who is today one of the most fluent, entertaining, inspiring, and helpful lecturers in the world. She says, my own work will illustrate the road which you may have to travel, no matter what line of endeavor you may choose or have chosen. Before I entered public work, I was using the formula to develop an ability to do the work I had chosen, teaching psychology. I was timid, nervous, reticent, retiring, dreaded public opinion, either in praise or condemnation, but I realized that if I was to do the work successfully, which my higher self said I should do, I would have to reverse my psychology, and I did so. After sufficient preparation, as I thought, I went into a town, advertised my lecture, and otherwise prepared for it. I expected at least 500 people to attend. To my consternation, when I arrived at the lecture hall at the appointed hour, only three women were there, seated on the front row. No more came in. That was my entire audience. I slipped into a little room alone and asked myself if I should give the lecture or quit right then. The answer came, 
three are as important as 300. Do your best. And I did. To make it businesslike, I took up a collection. I told my audience of three that we would have another lecture that night and asked them to bring their friends. They brought two others. My audience was increasing. I had five. My combined collections amounted to 30 cents, exactly what I was worth. I had not prepared sufficiently. My life has been a long story of earnest endeavor, never giving way to discouragement. I constantly endeavor to realize my ideal. I always keep in mind that someday it shall be realized. And do not fret, because the way is long, for the bliss of growth is one of the big joys of living. And when even small progress can be discerned, one is encouraged to push on toward the goal. Among the benefits of working toward a goal is not only the satisfaction of successful performance and the good accruing from it, but also the development of a well-rounded personality. Many people of less energy and courage have called this woman lucky, but they should spell it with a P if they expect to find one of the reasons for her big success. Rule five, don't try to win what you want by waiting on luck. Frederick D. Underwood, president of the Erie Railroad, recently said, sometimes there may be a little in what the world calls luck. It comes but rarely and never holds very long. A discussion as old as time has been waged around this question of luck. Those on the outside are inclined to say a man's success is due to luck, but those on the inside, those who really know the man, will tell you he made his own luck. Good luck that comes frequently and makes itself at home is always homemade. Bad luck of the chronic kind is also home-brewed, and the still, like most others, is out of your sight. Luck, says a prominent writer, has a way of favoring the prepared. It may give you a start, but it can never take you far. In the long haul, it is one's own power that has to do the work. All the luck in the world can't do much for the man who hasn't gotten ready for it in advance. The man who is known as a preparer is always lucky. Woolworth, creator of more than 1,005 and 10 cent stores and a multimillionaire, said, There are more opportunities in the world today than ever before. The door of opportunity is open to everyone, and no one can close this door but one's own self. No matter where we are, we can create our own opportunity, and we do so most surely and swiftly by preparing for it. Nothing can then keep it away. Rule six, no matter how dark the prospects or how unattainable your desires seem to be now, go straight ahead making your preparations. Let me tell you a love story. Some years ago, when I was still seeing students in private consultation, a teacher 32 years old told me her story and her desire for a home and husband. I have no opportunities to meet men, she said. When one associates only with children, one does not have the chances for matrimony that come to business or professional women. For economy's sake, I live at the YWCA, and there doesn't seem to be any modest way to make the acquaintance of eligible men. Some of my teacher friends have had successful marriages, and many of the business girls I know are happily mated, but I'm probably destined to be just one of those old maid school teachers. I took her over the very same ground we have covered in these lessons, explaining to her how these laws could be made to bring her the things she wanted most. When we reached this stage, the law of preparation, I asked her if she had ever made any real plans or preparations for finding or winning a mate. Of course not, she replied. Why should I? There has been none in sight and no prospect of any. Why waste my time? This is exactly where you are wrong. There is one thing that is never a waste of time, that cannot be lost, that always brings its rewards, and that thing is preparation. Don't you realize that you are, as a matter of fact, always getting ready for something, and that when you are not doing anything toward what you want, you are, by idleness, wrong moods, disbelief, pessimism, and other things, Really preparing to keep the condition you don't want? Just what shall I do then? 
she asked, to prepare for what I want. First of all, begin to visualize yourself in the role of a happily married woman and never, from this moment, allow yourself to dwell on the picture of yourself as an old maid school teacher. This is one of the great psychological laws. All achievement is built in the mind first. Your thoughts and visualizations are your mental blueprints. Without these mental images, no great thing ever materialized. Just as a skyscraper is the tangible actualization of the mental pictures which existed originally only in the mind of the architect, your every tangible possession is the result of visualization. In other words, make your plans. Second, make your preparations. And by this, I mean the very preparations you would make if you were engaged right now. Don't neglect one. Go right ahead, precisely as you would if you expected to marry within a year. Even to starting a hope chest, she laughed. Yes, even to the hope chest. Only make it extra beautiful, extra complete, and as perfect in every way as you can. Won't all this time and money and effort be wasted, she insisted. I believe in saving every cent I can. Don't stop with the hope chest. Begin to use some of the money you have at interest in the bank for a few pretty clothes. Not expensive, extravagant ones, but dainty, modest, womanly-looking things. Not many of them necessarily, but enough to avoid monotony. She could see how the clothes might help, but refused to spend all that work and money on an old hope chest that no one would ever see. Why, I know a lot of girls that get married without ever having thought of a hope chest, she said. And so do I, I told her, and you might. I'm only telling you how to do your part and then some. Good measure and running over if you want the quickest, surest results. People who are in earnest leave nothing undone. This accounts for their always getting more and getting it faster than others. Three years went by and I returned to lecture in her city. The young woman, changed almost beyond belief, called to see me. She looked 10 years younger and was much happier though she still had no prospects, she said. Her clothes were attractive and she had, she confided, a much larger bank account than when she had seen me last. Even school boards and principals prefer attractively attired teachers, she explained. I've done everything you told me except about that awful hope chest, she laughed. And if you still insist, I am now ready to do even that. I do not insist, and I do not say it is impossible for you to achieve your big desire without it. Certainly, you are on the road, I answered. But it would help, not of itself so much, but because it will do all kinds of things to you. It will crystallize things you are not now aware of at all. Just try it and see. And she did. The story of that hope chest, it reads like a novel. To begin with, it helped her in her visualizations and brought out vividly the pictures that had seemed vague and far away before. It kept her concentrated on all sorts of preparations she would never have made otherwise. It brought the same picture to the minds of her friends, all of whom were curious, naturally, and became more so when she refused to make any explanation to them. Pretty soon, everybody who knew her was saying, Margaret's getting ready to be married. Isn't it lovely? And it must be to somebody wonderful to look at the exquisite things in her hope chest. What shall I tell them when they insist on knowing when I'm to be married? She wrote me. Tell them, I answered, that it will be as soon as your chest is full. Months passed and Margaret's engagement became the mystery of the day. As such, it naturally monopolized much of the thought and conversation of her friends. What shall I do if he doesn't appear? She finally wrote me six months after the chest was started. I know I shall die of chagrin. I will have to resign my position. I couldn't stay here a day if anyone should find this out. Please write me what to do. Stop showing the white feather, I wired. That was seven months ago. Recently, I received this letter. You may read it over my shoulder. I am on my honeymoon at Lake Louise, a most heavenly spot in the Canadian Rockies with the nicest husband. How it happened was this. I attended a series of psychology lectures to brace me up and remind me of your teachings. 
There I met a splendid young businessman who was interested in just the same things I am. We used to sit together in the classes. When they were over, he called on me regularly. Finally, friends told him I was engaged, and he said, that is something I am well aware of, for I'm the man. You see, I told him all about it as so as he asked me to marry him. And instead of being disillusioned, he said he admired my thoroughness. We later told my friends. They laughed a lot, but I've noticed several of the girls busy on fine embroidery lately. Just the same. Rule 7. At first, you may feel some doubt or uncertainty. Little fear thoughts may come knocking at the door of your mind. When they do, you should gently but persistently turn them away. If you do this, they will return less and less frequently and finally stay away altogether. On the other hand, if you will do this, better and more effective thoughts building toward what you want will come to your mind more and more often. Some of these will suggest ways of reducing your time of waiting and eventually point out shortcuts. Practice in constructive thinking builds toward the construction of whatever you are thinking about. One of the big reasons why outsiders never can see just how one's good luck comes is that they cannot see the inner thought machinery go round. Things move more rapidly for you the more diligently and the more intensely you think the right thoughts. Entertaining the wrong attitudes for a while can put you back, but you can always resume your forward progress by getting back on the track of right thinking. If you will stick to your good thoughts when the pull seems hard, you will always find that this was merely a stiff grade with a chance to coast for a long distance down the other side, once you get to the top. Rule 8. Don't be content with going through the motions. As a man thinketh in his heart is the vital thing, not what he does with his hands or tongue or pretenses. Intensity is the dynamo which opens new paths toward what you want. The distance you travel and the rate of speed you make depends on your degree of intensity. In other words, it is you and your great God-given forces that create your world and the things that happen to you. If you are not making your preparations with sincerity, you are like an electric light bulb when the power is turned off. All the mechanism there, but no light. Very little effort, when accompanied by a lot of the right spirit, often accomplishes wonders. More effort, combined with more and deeper sincerity, can do the impossible. It is their inability to see this inner voltage, which makes others think our achievements accidental. The same blindness to inner conditions also makes it hard to explain to them why the rushing, hurrying, busy person, as well as the idle pessimist, often fails. Don't mistake busyness for business. Much of the business of succeeding is done after the doors are closed at night and before they open in the morning. Rule nine, don't be in a hurry. If you try to speed up delivery of what you want by hurry instead of by quality in your preparation, you will only delay it. It is always better to build solidly as you go and avoid setbacks, for setbacks always come to the man who has forced results by hothouse methods. If you sacrifice stability to speed, you will have to go back sooner or later and make up for it. And this demotion is a far greater humiliation than waiting, sometimes so crushing to sensitive souls as to make it hard for them to hold up their heads again. Sarah Bernhardt's favorite teacher, who had more to do, she said, with her success than any other one person, fully understood this. Looking back over many years to my early days as a student at the conservatory in Paris, my heart fills with gratitude to my best beloved teacher there because he would not allow me to compete for a prize when I had been there only three months. He was afraid I would win and that my rapid success would be a detriment to me in the end. Later, when I had been awarded a first prize by a committee which came without our knowledge to see us rehearse, he refused to let me be told about it. He said to them, if you give her first prize, which I admit she deserves, she will be almost certain to leave the conservatory too soon. She has within her the fire of genius, but she needs a great more development. 
she must have more preparation. Rule 10. When you recognize that you should do certain things in order to be properly prepared for what you want, do not hesitate, delay, or postpone the doing of them, much less refuse to do them. Someday, and this is what rewards us for all the preparation, we will be weighed in the balance. If we have done our part, the scales will show it, and we are sent up higher. But if we have not, we will go down a step or two. A chain is not stronger than its weakest link. When I was a little girl, I got my first lessons in a log schoolhouse in the Rocky Mountains. In those days, the wildest kind of show we ever put on for our fond parents was a spelling match. This generation won't know what that is, but some of you 50-year-olds will. The one who spelled down the class was noted for the good old-fashioned preparation he made under the kerosene lamp at night. The man who goes to the head of his class anywhere in life has to be ready for it in advance. Later, when I attended a grammar school in town, the same old inexorable law used to keep bobbing up when we least expected it. After putting somebody into the scales, it would send him up a grade or back a few. We found we could manage sometimes to get into the next higher grade by cramming, bluffing the teacher, or being lucky as to questions. But staying there was another story. Here, we'd be in another room under another teacher with a whole year dividing us from our slackness in the grade before. But our sin always found us out. And back we went to make it up. Also, every once in a while, some plain green gawk would come in from the mountains from the country schools of the mining camps or lumber mills. I remember one who started in at the third grade. I'll never forget the shock it gave us fourth graders one day when this freckle-faced, red-haired boy, whom all of us had teased and ridiculed from our heights of learning, was promoted right over our heads and put into high fifth. He had been in school about 10 days. He had said very little and was the most surprised one of us all when the principal dropped in one morning and said, Red, come with me. Everyone giggled. Everybody, that is, except Red. He wondered what he'd done and how big the stick was going to be. But he went. Everybody heard about the principal's speech and told it at recess. Children, he said when he marched Red into the fifth, here is a new member. We find that although he has had only three months of schooling a year and dug the rest out of his books by himself, he is too far along for the third grade or even the fourth so we're going to try him here for a while. We may have to promote him to the sixth. When we get into life's great grown-up school, it is just the same. You will have nothing to complain of in the world's treatment of you if you get ready for the best. Rule 11. If you want something worthwhile, don't look for soft snaps. A thing you can get with little preparation isn't worth even that little, usually. The job requiring little effort pays little, keeps you little, and reduces your chances as time goes on. There are so many after these easy places that you will always face lots of competition. And as you grow older, they will put younger men in your place. But the more preparation demanded by your job, the less the competition. This will be especially true if you train your mind, which few will do. More especially will you outdistance competition if you develop your subconscious mind, for that is something others can't imitate and which makes you unique no matter what line you are in. The man who has trained his conscious mind is hard to replace. Callow youth can't outstrip him, for brains, unlike bodies, are keener at 50 than at 20. But the man who learns how to delve into his subconscious and makes preparations there gives up his place only when he passes on to the next world. His personality, resourcefulness, and depth of vision make him indispensable. For him, age does not exist. Imagine anyone displacing Thomas Edison, Carrie Chapman Catt, John Burroughs, ex-president Eliot of Harvard, Henry Ford, or William Gillette, Eleonora Duse at 64, and Bernhardt at 75, though of a profession supposed to depend upon youth, could not be touched by any younger star. Love for a thing backed up by preparation can do anything. If you love this thing you want, in other words, if you really want it, you will enjoy most of the preparation. 
Not all of it, of course, for some drudgery goes along with every great achievement. We have times and moods when something less exacting looks alluring, no matter how much we love our work, but for the most part, you will enjoy it. Rule 12. If you want any opening with a future to it, you must expect to build in the present. Today. Right now. James Logan, the rich and successful general manager of the United States Envelope Company, says, It was from my job in a bookstore that I got my real start, for in it I got my first big idea. After I had been there a while, this thought struck me. If I keep books all my life, I shall never get very far, because a man can learn to keep books in about three months, so there will always be plenty of bookkeepers. I had better try to learn something that is not so easy. I asked the owner if I could spend half of my time out in the store, selling, provided I didn't neglect the accounts. I didn't ask for more pay, only for more work. The head clerk kicked, but the owner backed me up. When I had learned how to sell books and was fully prepared, I asked the owner to let me go out at odd times to sell books and office supplies. This was a new idea to them. They had always waited for the trade to come to them. I proved to be a good salesman. I had two positions offered me in banks, but I said no. The jobs were genteel, but too easy. Too little was required and the pay correspondingly low. I wanted a harder job, for I knew that was the only kind that would pay more, and more pay I was determined to get. Eventually, of course, I got it. There may be such a thing as luck, and I would enjoy the good kind as much as anybody, but I never leave anything to luck until I have established control over everything that can be controlled. When one is doing as well as he knows how, he is getting ready for the good luck, and he is sure to have it. If you want a soft future, take the hardest knocks now. You will be younger tomorrow. Rule 13. Do not allow other people to talk you out of doing the work you love. If you love a thing well enough to love the work it entails, you can rise to heights in that work, no matter how little other men see in it. Logan, whose story was quoted above, knew banking had no future for him because he didn't love it enough to give it complete preparation. This always depends on the individual preference. But Percy Johnston, who at 40 became president of the Chemical National Bank of New York City, one of the largest financial institutions in America, says, a man can attain success if he is willing to get all ready for it. I began preparing myself for a banking career at the age of 12. Here are some of his mottos on the subject. Always the man or woman who succeeds beyond his fellows is the man or woman who prepared. This kind of person meets opportunity more than halfway. Leadership calls for preparation and knowledge of human nature. Don't ask what is the easiest way it can be done, but what is the best way? The only pull worth having is the pull your preparation gives you. Learn to select your risk. Every time you learn anything, you are storing something away that you will certainly use in some way later on. And every time you fail to learn from experience or look beyond your present place, you are preparing to lose the place you have. Rule 14. If you want to test yourself and know, in general, whether you are making the right preparations for the future, take note of two things. How far ahead you are living in your mind and how much you are doing over and above what you absolutely have to do to hold your present place. We must make the most of today, but we must not stop there. We must also keep our mental eyes on the future. How far ahead on the road are your eyes fastened? At tomorrow, next year, or a decade away? When interviewers ask me to what one thing of all others I feel I owe my present happiness, I say, the habit cultivated in spite of laziness and inertia of living in the now, but looking 20 years ahead. Wisdom, says John Blake, is a plant of slow growth. After it is planted, it must be watered through the years. But it always bears fruit, an unusually golden fruit, at a time when man knows how to spend wisely 
and profitably the leisure, which is the harvest of bygone years. Rule 15. Do not waste time bewailing the conditions of your life, but prepare for better ones. It has been well said. One half of the time spent in bemoaning conditions, if spent in preparing for conditions, would remake conditions. Taking yourself or what you are doing pessimistically never helps and always hurts. One of the cheeriest men in American industry is one of its most famous and successful, Charles M. Schwab. Schwab has had two outstanding habits since boyhood. He always wears a smile and he is forever getting ready for something better. When as a very young man, his superintendent took him to meet Andrew Carnegie, the superintendent said, Andy, here is a young fellow who knows as much about this mill as I do. His phenomenal rise started right then and never stopped because he wasted no minutes fretting, but invested them growing mentally for the next step up. Rule 16. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. This great eternal law operates everywhere at all times throughout our lives, but nowhere is it more noticeable than in this very matter of preparation. Very few people grasp this last amazing fact, that there is no such thing as standing still, and that no moment passes without our planting something. What our harvests will be tomorrow depends on the seeds we are planting today. Don't think that because you cannot see it, you are not bringing something to pass every hour of your life. We are always, by our refusal to act, no less than by overt acts, preparing for something. Sins of omission bring their results just as surely as do those of commission. Since we are moment by moment laying the foundations for the future, and since what it shall bring to us depends upon these foundations, let us build them strong and sure. Frank Crane says, someday, or to be exact, some minute, you are going to need every ounce of your strength, every volt of your energy, and every faculty of your mind. Are you ready? Life is determined largely by crises. Success in business can often be traced to some one single act also success and love. Our happiness, our character, and our fortune depend markedly upon single instances. This is not as unfair as it seems, because our inability to succeed in a given crisis is based upon the thoroughness with which we are prepared for it. The young pianist, for instance, has his opportunity. He has to play a concerto at a grand concert. Thousands of people are watching him. The orchestra is ready. The conductor stands with his baton raised. Now is his chance. He must put every atom of skill into that intense quarter of an hour. It is that which will make him or break him. But how he carries off that occasion depends entirely upon what he has been doing for hours and days and weeks preceding. All those long periods of practice all those long and wearisome and nerve-wracking exercises were a mighty getting ready for this occasion. It is the drill that makes the soldier. Drill makes the expert fireman. Crises comes to all of us, moments when our whole future or life itself turns on the reaction we give to that instant. But a crisis is no time to think a reason. We must draw upon the thinking we have done previously and especially upon the stuff we have been feeding into the subconscious. Physiologically speaking, says Crane, a man gets through a crisis better by using his spinal cord than by using his brain. In other words, he can fall back on the power of habit and the accumulated skill of practice much more safely than he can depend upon his immediate judgment. The most striking fact concerned is this. Every person does fall back upon his spinal cord and habit consciousness whenever he faces a crisis, and what it brings forth will be in exact accord with his previous reactions. Your subconsciousness will bring forth every atom of assistance it can. If it is enough, all is well. If it is not, you have not fed into it the materials necessary for building the right response. 
A man who expects to ride a horse over dangerous country or even for his daily canter through the par must feed him to keep him strong enough to carry his weight. You must give your subconscious the right thought food if you want to go through life successfully. One of Abraham Lincoln's most famous sayings was, I will study and prepare myself, and when the opportunity comes, I will be ready for it.